Brandon, what came out on your birthday? Rapid fire, go. I was going to say, uh, this is going to be a joke. of just like, oh, you had cars, Prometheus. I had Fly Meets the Moon. You remember that movie? <laughs> hey, I hope that it spoke volumes for you, okay? It did at the time. We're moving on. <laughs> okay. Everyone, and welcome to Plot Devices, episode 30. Uh, there's a joke about uh, one of our favorite movies from last year, Tick, Tick, Boom, and the whole 3090 thing. That's the that's the immediate 30 number joke that came up to me. In case you haven't noticed, I'm running out of number jokes, and thank God 31 is next so I can make an easy ice cream joke. My name is Brandon King, alongside my wonderful co-host, Mr. Noah Guzman. Noah, how are you today? Episode 30 is here. I'm feeling flirty. I'm feeling flirty, I'm feeling 30, and I'm thriving, baby. I'm happy we hit this milestone. I think every episode I'm going to act like it's the main, <laughs> the biggest milestone because it's like, hey, we're still going. <laughs> You're not wrong. The fact that we've been able to put up with each other in this concept for this long is a miracle in itself. So, like, yeah, and for us. Uh, hey, claps, claps, claps. And also, my vibe is that this is going to be a rock star sort of episode. Is that true? Do you get that vibe? A little bit because we've got uh, we've got Elvis review coming up. We're going to be talking Pistol, the Sex Pistols miniseries on Hulu, and I think that's a pretty good transition because our first topic feels a bit rock starry. Brandon, what can you tell us about this new sequel proposed with a uh, celebrity attached? Who's kind of you know she, they're blurring the line that exists between music artist and actor, and they're kind of merging, you know. So y'all remember Joker, right? We all remember Joker is the movie that. No DC fan thought they wanted. Most comic book fans, most movie fans thought, like, why is this a thing? And then it made a billion dollars and got nominated for a bunch of Oscars, including a win for Joaquin Phoenix, I believe, making one of, like, three instances where a character has won multiple Oscars for multiple incarnations. I believe it's only, like, two or three times. Either way, made a big impact. Everyone thought it was one and done. It was going to be great. And then... A couple weeks ago, uh, Todd Phillips, who of course directed Joker, the Hangover movies, a bunch of other things, he posted on Instagram that Joker 2 was indeed happening with an Instagram photo of himself and Joaquin Phoenix and a new script titled Joker 2 Folly Adieu. Uh, if any of you out there are novices at French, much like I was, Folly Adieu by the definition is, um, if I'm memorizing correctly, a folly between two people, something along those lines. Now, we have learned some pretty interesting details in an exclusive report from The Hollywood Reporter. This is a couple days old as we're recording this, but, you know, we got to talk about it. Because apparently, Joker Folie Adieu will be both a musical, okay, and could feature none other than Lady Gaga herself playing Joker's romantic interest turned anti-hero girlfriend, Harley Quinn. It is worth noting, however, that at this point, neither Gaga nor Phoenix have officially signed on. Warner Brothers have not made an official announcement that Joker 2 is actually happening, but it seems like enough wheels are turning that this could be a thing, and if the Hollywood Reporter report is to be believed, it could be something really interesting. Uh, Noah, huh? What do we make of this? I'm going to cheer, first of all, because it's a musical, and the Joker, a comic book movie giving us a musical rendition? What?! Um, is this something up the alley of our director? I'm not too sure, but a little bit of research might answer that question for me, but it all just feels so new. And I think that that's been the reaction on like the social feeds as well is attaching Lady Gaga and bringing in like that big name, that big star power beyond the screen. You know, we know Gaga is a rock star, um, it's unfortunate that the last time we saw her was in House of Gucci, but she did uh, have that phenomenal role in A Star is Born. 
So give me more Gaga. All you hear is Radio Gaga. Um, give me the musical. Give me her acting chops for... I want this story, if it involves Harley Quinn, I want more of Harleen Quinzel. And I think that that's with the vibe of the first Joker and how we didn't really get iconic Joker looks until like the second half. Am I right in saying that? Like we didn't really get iconic Joker looks till the end. I think that that's what I want here too, is in Joker 2, ground us in the reality, because that's kind of what we're going, right? Ground us in the reality of this psychiatrist that's that becomes so entranced, so involved with the Joker and see her lose herself and become mad. Um, I cannot wait. I think that actually this is a, a majorly positive announcement. Like, I don't think that you need to look at this and go, Ooh, I'm scared, but to each their own. I know that I am comfortable in my seat and looking forward. Uh, ooh, I'm scared. <laughs> um, and I, I don't mean to like be that guy, but like, I was not the biggest fan. Uh, I thought Joaquin Phoenix was incredible and I thought well deserving his Academy Award, as was, uh, Hilda Guadatir for her score. Again, making her like one of the few women who has earned the Academy Award for Best Original Score. Well deserved. I thought there were things about that movie that really worked, but I was also, even in my cynicism about the movie, I was excited at the notion of Oh, look, a one and done weird Elseworlds take that is all its own and will gain a reputation all its own. Because I think at the end of the day, one of my problems was that it was so disinterested in the fact of, yeah, it's a Batman universe movie that has nothing to do with it. And some people really like that. I wanted it to have some kind of world building to it. At the end of the day, it just felt like Scorsese era New York with the joke, which is fine for what it is, but I wanted more to it. And that is the reason why particularly I didn't want a sequel, much less this until you told me it was a musical with a, a potential Lady Gaga starring as Harley Quinn, to which I immediately go, tell me more. Like, you can't look at that and go, I don't want that. Do you think this will be a better movie if the focus is now shifted to Harley Quinzel over the Joker? Potentially, because there's also, we have to bring up, there is already a Harley Quinn active in the DCU with Margot Robbie, who- Who is know, adored by the yes. community who has been adored since the bad movie that was Suicide Squad 2016. Like, that's how popular this character has been. But again, Lady Gaga has been on the upward track as far as the performer goes. You know, the, the Top Gun soundtrack, Star is Born, which Todd Phillips actually produced and had a hand in. So he does have some advisor experience with musicals, so I'm not adverse to that. I'm wondering who's going to write the songs, though. I wonder if they just go like, oh, yeah, Pace Ball, who's, like, greatest showman. They're like, let's go all out. Or, like, get someone from, like, off-Broadway or something like that. That could be interesting. But I think even just as far as plot line goes... The Joker-Harley dynamic is one that has so enrichly benefited the DC universe, but I think mainly towards the idea of Harley becoming her own character, that I don't necessarily want to see more toxicity from this universe. I'd much rather enjoy seeing, you know, the Birds of Prey Avenue, like, she's going on her own, just has a bunch of friends. Or Harley Quinn on HBO. Yes, or Harley Quinn on HBO, which, you know, is its own thing to dissect, but like, for Joker specifically, while I am not enthralled at the idea of this team tackling this kind of uh, relationship, at the same time, I got to give them props. And I, I got to give Warner Brothers the props for saying, like, no, you know what? We This movie made a billion dollars. There is clearly an avenue for this. We can make more in this universe. Let's move on to our next major topic for today, one that I, I lobbied hard to get this topic in here, and I'm so glad that my co-host agreed to this. Uh, at the recent Annecy International Animated Film Festival, Paramount Pictures confirmed not just one, we're getting three films based on Avatar The Last Airbender in the works from the studio. This is a quote from Ramsey Nido, who is the president of animation development in Nickelodeon, reads as follows. 
As original creators, Mike and Brian expand the Avatar universe with us. Uh, we're keeping it all in the family with Lauren bringing in the same kind of expert, beautiful work she did on the original series to her new directing duties on the forthcoming theatrical. Lauren, in this case, being Lauren Montgomery, who is best known as a storyboard artist on season three of the original Avatar series, as well as like a bunch of like DC animated movies, the Voltron series, she's incredibly accomplished. She's going to direct at least one of these films. Now, you're probably wondering, what are these films going to be about? Well, we don't officially know yet, but if you believe Avatar News, which is kind of the breaking cycle of um, the breaking news cycle for Avatar fans, it's been going pretty consistently for the last year or so with the live action series. Uh, take this with a giant bit of salt. They have confirmed with sources from the festival that apparently these three films are going to be a prequel centering around Avatar Kiyoshi, a film centered around Zuko at some point after the events of the original series, and a film taking place after the Legend of Korra sequel series. Uh, that report says the Kiyoshi film will likely be a first release sometime in 2024, which each of the other films coming out a year after. Noah, uh, there's two parts to break down to this. One, how do you feel about Paramount with the inclusion of um, uh, Michael D. Bartino and Brian Konietzko involved in the Avatar universe yet again after leaving the Netflix series, seeing what they're doing with this? And number two, Kiyoshi, Korra, Zuko, are those the characters to go with? Okay, so I'm going to sprinkle in a little bit, a little bit of other news too, because I yeah, don't know if y'all have um, seen this on your feeds, but I heard a whisper that Netflix has a plan to introduce ads, and why I bring that up is because here comes Paramount. I mean, after Netflix lost their original creators that were attached to their live action. Um, Avatar series, Paramount's looking like its scale is getting heavier and heavier in terms of value. And I think that with these three Avatar titles, yes, Avatar, I think, is is favorited by so many fans. And that's both Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra for different reasons. I, I remember it took me years to start The Legend of Korra. And when I finally did, I could understand how people talked about it being two separate shows, but they still kind of have the same um, core feel to it. These are the perfect three characters to explore. We have Avatar Kiyoshi, who's always mentioned in the series, uh, The Last Airbender. So the fact that we can actually explore an avatar, another avatar um, who is female, I think is just going to be such a powerful, um, like, added history to what fans already know. And I'm only talking as a fan of the animated series. I have not looked into any comic books. I have not read any of their, if they have regular books. I'm not really sure what exists out there beyond the animated series. Except for that Shyamalan. <laughs> We're not going to talk about Shyamalan. Okay. Not today. Zuko. Oh my gosh. Yes. I love Zuko's uh, villain to freaking hero arc in The Last Airbender. Uh, his grandson or his son shows up in The Legend of Korra. And I thought that that was great to see. Although I did still want more from the Zuko bloodline. So if I can get a future Zuko kind of matured now and now motivated by something else, I can't wait to see him unleash that. And the last one, The Legend of Korra, Korra and Asami, because that was yes. a relationship that the series kind of maybe teetered on teasing, but they really were just, they were endgame. Like you waited for both of them to realize their feelings for each other or realize how to act upon them. And all the show could give us by the end of it, spoiler alert, skip 15 seconds forward is them holding hands, like walking into what looks like oblivion. Like they just, they the right off in the spirit portal. And so if we can get a series that catches up on their relationship, hell yes, I'm ready for that queer love uh, to be displayed front and center in a legend of Korra series. 
Brandon, I've talked for a minute, but I really do want to hear your thoughts too. Tell me um, what kind of fan you are of this Avatar world and what you have to look forward to with these major titles or these major concepts being introduced. I mean, I echo a lot of your thoughts. I mean, we've talked about, you know, all the anticipation for the live action series. And side note, if you have not seen uh, Paul Sung Hyun Yang, uh, oh God, Kim's Convenience Guy, who plays Iroh, I'm forgetting his exact name. Um, but he did a video recently where he was talking about like, oh, you aren't even ready. Like people leak stuff. It's not even half of it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like the Netflix series is going to be a thing. And there's clearly people attached who love that. But there's something about hearing, you know, that like Michael and Brian are still attached to this world, that they want to tell more stories. And that Paramount is letting them after, let's be honest, even though I do love Legend of Korra, after the ending of that series felt condensed to a corporate degree, this is not the time to go into that, but I'm hoping, like what you said, that we get more of Korra and Asami's journey after Legend of Korra, because I have read some of the comics, not all of them, but I've read a good amount of them. I think there are stories especially to be told with those two and their relationship to the post-spirit world landscape that that show offers, uh, let alone Zuko's journey, which... Again, knowing some of his stuff from after the comics, I, get, I hope they adapt the search, which is the story of how Zuko finds his mother. I hope that's kind of the thing they do. They won't, but I hope that's what they do. But again, there's story, there's story potential there. And Kiyoshi, like I haven't read the FCE novels about, you know, the Kiyoshi life and her version of the Avatar camaraderie, so to speak. But like she is a fascinating character. Fans adore her, even though she was barely in the original series. And you're right, like to get more not just another female avatar, another queer avatar, because she, like Korra, is also LGBTQ. So like, to get more stories like that, I think is super important. I love that they're getting Lauren Montgomery in there. I hope they get a lot of the team from the original back, whether it's, you know, uh, Kid, uh, Aaron, sorry, whether it's like Ethan Haz or even Dave Filoni, like bring back some of those names who knew the original series brought in back. Uh, this is all good news. I hope it's these characters. I hope there's more to come. And again, as a fan, it's super exciting. As we're going to start introducing in, in our new episodes, uh, we're going to have like a trailer roundup. We're going to talk about the new trailers that have dropped over the last two weeks or in between recordings. And then if we have comments about some of these big ones, or we just think that they're worthy of bringing back to your attention, as I'm sure they're on your Instagram, they're on your Twitter, they're wherever you're watching a screen. I'm going to begin the conversation with a new horror title, okay? This one's scheduled to release later this year. Um, it's a horror film starring Sosie Bacon, Cal Penn, and Jesse T. Usher, and its title is Smile. This is going to be directed by Parker Finn. I'll read you the IMDb description of the movie. After witnessing a bizarre traumatic incident involving a patient, Dr. Rose Cotter starts experiencing frightening occurrences that she can't explain. Rose must confront her troubling past in order to survive and escape her horrifying new reality. There's a new trailer out for this film, and it seems that almost in the style of It Follows, when someone is afflicted by this entity or by this terror that haunts them, it just forces a smile on their face. And if you are looking for a scare... It's, it's relevant, sort of. Go watch YouTube's The Smiling Man and watch all iterations, watch whatever kind has the most views. That's one of the scariest videos I ever watched in my life. Um, <laughs> it's not even that graphic, but it's just terrifying. Somebody having a detached smile on their face and not breaking from it. But that seems to be what happens to people in this case. Um, the trailer is, for the most part, honestly, mediocre. I think the film kind of looks like 
boring, but that does not save, um, that does not mean to say that I'm not going to go check it out because I'm a sucker for horror. And the end of that trailer actually has a jump scare that, that surprised me and kind of like knocked me back. Um, it's definitely going to make you go like, what the F? And I think that it's going to be a title that's going to excite people in the fall time of this year as we get ready for October and start feeling all spooky. And that is, uh, that's separately September 30th, by the way. So it'll have plenty of Halloween legs. What's a trailer that stuck out to you this last week? I got to talk about this. So apparently, you're, any of you remember Wonder, that really cute kind of family movie about the kid uh, played by Jacob Tremblay, his face is disfigured, Owen Wilson and Julie Roberts play the parents. It was really sweet and lovely and had a great message about bullying. Uh, apparently, there's more. And it's going to be about the bully. And his- Brandon, is this a sequel? It's both a prequel and a sequel. Uh, White Bird, a wonder story. So they're taking the Star Wars angle from it, which I think is ridiculous. Um, needless to say, it is taking place after the events of Wonder. Bryce Geyser, who plays uh, Julian the Bully from the original movie, his grandmother is visiting from Paris, now played by Helen Mirren. She has had some experiences in her past uh, while being hidden from the Nazis back in World War II, and it flashes apparently back to teach the young boy a lesson that, you know, you shouldn't have bullied Augie in the first movie, and, you know, maybe there's a romance involved. And I'm sorry, what is this? It's so weird. Uh, it's what being direct. Uh, go ahead. What is this? Brandon, what are we watching right now? Is this a movie that is, like, trying to... Like you said, you mentioned this before we started recording. Is it banking off its original title, but including like, z- there's little affiliation, I think, to the original Wonder Story to a point where I think, couldn't the background of this main character been shifted a little bit just to change it? There's not really much attaching it to Wonder. Not really. As- even if it's the fact of like, okay, we have to make it of like the grandmother teaches the kid a lesson about bullying and violence today. Great. You don't have to make it related to wonder. It's just a matter of like, well, wonder made $300 billion. So of course we are. I don't want to see additional connected universes if they're not DC or MCU, because what are we doing here? I mean, we had M. Night Shyamalan's glass um, split and the last one, I just can't think it's called glass, but Oh yeah. I don't think we need more of this. I don't think that, especially if you're going this angle, which is let's take, they took the bully <laughs> of the first film and now are, are, are they trying to give them a redemption arc? I, I think that's exactly what it is. I think it's like, we, we were a bit too hard and like everyone's good for redemption. I'm like, okay, fine. Like he's a kid. He makes mistakes. Sure. But like the whole point of that movie is that sometimes there needs to be consequences. Now this film is taking the, the approach of like, well, no. Is it trying to, match the first film of wonder where it's like it it's not what outside that matters it's what's inside and now this sequel prequel what you want to call it is now it it doesn't matter if you look normal on the outside it's what inside that really shows and then they bring in helen mirren to tell her story which then again disconnects from whatever they're trying to pitch to us it's and, like, to, to its credit, I actually don't think the trailer looks that bad. Like, if you hadn't shown me the title card at the end, I would have thought, okay, this is, this is a fine little, you know, war flight. And, like, it comes from Mark Forster, who's done movies like Fighting Neverland and the Kite Runners. Like, he's used to this kind of storytelling. It's just the fact that, like, it's a prequel sequel to Wonder, and I can't take it seriously. Should we wrap this up really quickly with uh, probably the trailer that everyone's talking about? Uh, the first look at Blonde. First look at Blonde, we have Ana de Armas starring as Marilyn Monroe in this major epic that talks about um, her life. I don't really know, like, how far they're going to go with her, like, upbringing or if they're just going to focus on her being in the limelight and being um, 
you know, spotlighted in media, but we do have our first trailer. We do have our first lines spoken by Ana de Armas as Monroe. We're getting some great visuals of the type of costuming and the types of looks that are going to be reimagined on Ana de Armas as this character. Um, the trailer honestly doesn't give you much other than that, you know, a handful of visuals and um, Armas getting ready and prepped to like face a crowd. And she's just pleading with God to give her strength. And I think that I'm not going to be prepared for the emotional weight of this story already with what um, Anna's bringing to it. Would you agree there, Brandon? Or what did you get from this trailer? I agree. I think this is going to be very weighty, very insightful to a particular angle of Marilyn Monroe's history. Because if you know any of the history, and I know a, a fragment of it, I've been trying to learn more just in case for this movie, but like, she herself was villainized and overly sexualized by a large portion of the audience that didn't get a lot of her subtext, didn't get a lot of her charity work and a lot of just her normal artistic value to see Ana de Armas tackle that in a vein like this. Directed by Andrew Dominic, who did the assassination of uh, Jesse James, who I cannot wait to see him do another narrative project from. But again, like I think if nothing else, much like a uh, spoiler for Elvis that we're going to talk about later, I think everyone will be talking about De Armas' performance. She looks impeccably like Marilyn Monroe and just that scene of her laughing in the smiling fade away. And I'm like, I want to see that. Absolutely. I think when it comes to Blonde, that's going to be a title that is going <laughs> to, I hope, dominate the week on its release. I'm not sure what else is coming out that time of year, but it seems like uh, that's going to be the hot topic of September. Well, that, well that's the thing is that's going to be on Netflix and it's also going to be NC-17 which was a big thing about whether Netflix was going to make it NC-17 or not. So it's going to have an audience. It just might not be the biggest audience. We're watching. Um, let's much. go ahead and move on to our last trailer. We're going to kind of be short on this. Uh, we're sure there are fans out there who are excited about this title, but myself and my co-hosts were looking at it as more of, why don't we mention this because we know it's happening and <laughs> see what we can share. So Hocus Pocus 2 is coming. It is coming to Disney+. Plus. Yes. It will be arriving at Disney Plus on September 30th, featuring the original trio of witches starring Bette Midler, Kathy Najime, and Sarah Jessica Parker. Um, me and Brandon had this discussion and we're like, we're more like Halloween Town fans. Can I tell you something? I've never finished Hocus Pocus. Ooh. I know. Ooh, that's a blow. Okay, so there's going to be someone out there listening, though, that is going, Hocus Pocus 2, I really can't wait to see it. It doesn't reveal much, and I'm thankful for that. I think it, it revealed what it needed to. It it teased the trailer. It teased the atmosphere of the of the movie, which I think is expected. Like, I think they're not yeah. – it's not, it's not really, you know – going to push any boundaries in terms of what can happen to this story. Um, looks like it takes place in a, in a town, there's a school, there's kids and these witches show up and they're going to cause a stir. It's um, going to be spooky ish. It's going to be spooky ish. It's going to be your family Halloween town or <laughs> it's going to be your family Halloween time flick that you yeah. throw on uh, some of you for nostalgia value. Some of you just because you're looking for something lighter and for the fans out there who are excited about it. Um, yeah, again, like, I have no connection to this movie, but, like, I know there's many, many fans who will be excited for it, and specifically a lot of fans who grew up with the first who will now be able to tell their kids, like, hey, there's a first one to this if you like it or if you want to be prepared for it. And, like, okay, sure, like, I'm happy that's getting me time, uh, that's getting me time in spotlight. 
Quick hits. Brandon, if you don't mind pulling up my handy dandy little clock so that I can immediately go over it. (laughs) So um, my one minute sort of begins now. So I'm going to be talking about a new HBO spinoff in the making. Okay. I got a lot of this information off of a variety article written by Zach Scharf. And so HBO is in early development on a Game of Thrones spinoff. No, I'm not talking about House of the Dragon. We know that that's going to be be releasing here later in the year. But actually, it's a series that will focus on another beloved character from the original HBO show. So we're actually getting a spinoff that ties into some of our Game of Thrones Times characters. So the show development title is Snow. So I'm sure you can guess this will be a Kit Harington-starred Jon Snow spinoff. The original author, George R.R. R. Martin, will be involved just as he is in other Game of Thrones spinoffs. Uh, this is a quote directly from that Variety article. Martin says, yes, it was Kit Harrington who brought the idea to us. I cannot tell you the names of the writers or the showrunners since that has not been cleared for release yet. But Kit brought them into his own team and they are terrific. Time. I don't know what to, how to feel about House of the Dragon with all the with the new timeline, with the new characters, with the shift of the world. But with what we can explore in Snow, I know that I'm interested. It's a good title. Like you could you could make that your thing of just like next week is Snow. Absolutely. Let's move on to mine in three, two. So Disney remakes. People love them. People hate them. Depends who you ask. Uh, we've heard about a remake of Hercules for a while. Uh, of course, the you know late nineties or two thousand. I'm forgetting the release date. Classic with you know James Woods and all the gospel songs and all that. We've heard about it for a while now. We have a director, Guy Ritchie, who recently directed the billion-dollar grossing remake of Aladdin, is going to be helming this project in addition to the Russo brothers, who are going to be producing under their Agbo production banner, as they and the studio look to rewrite the movie's initial script, which was written by uh, Shang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings writer David Callahan. Uh, Ritchie is, of course, best known for his fast-paced directing style, memorable anti-heroes, stuff like Lock, Stock, Two Smoking Barrels, the aforementioned Aladdin, and most recently, Wrath of Man, starring longtime collaborator Jason Statham, who has a very real shot of being a Hercules movie, and I kind of wanted to play Hades in some weird part of my brain. Uh, no release date has been set. We have no shooting date, no casting for Achilles yet. I have never been a huge fan of the original, but I'm fascinated to see what you could do with a live-action concept. The mythology is obviously there. Maybe bring back some of the songs and it could be something really fun and time. Brandon, you think there are people out there who are not behind Disney remakes? Oh, what? there are many. <laughs> what are some of the most exciting details about this project that have you kind of perked up for? I get, it's probably just Richie. Like, uh, the Russo brothers being involved is interesting because at this point, basically anything they do either gets money or gets viewers if it's Netflix. Good for them. I'm sure they'll be able to market this really popularly. I wish David Callahan had been on because I'm liking more and more of his writing, but like, Richie is the main focus here. You either love his work or you don't, which is weird because Aladdin didn't feel like him. It was probably the most non-guy Richie thing he's ever done. And yeah, I really enjoyed that movie. So, who knows? But again, like Jason Statham or Matthew McConaughey or like Hugh Grant better pop up in here. He's got to bring like one of his cadre in here. Today for our reviews, we are talking three titles that are in theaters now. It's going to be The Black Phone. That's going to be a solo review from me. We are talking Lightyear and Elvis together. And actually our fourth title I'm going to introduce right now. Me and Brandon are talking Cha Cha Real Smooth on Apple TV.
Cha-Cha Real Smooth. It has been the, as some have called it, the new coda of this year, where it's, you know, the big, crowd-pleasing, happy favorite. We may have different things to say on this movie, as I heard from our pre-production meeting, but this is the newest project in Cooper Rape, who, uh, mostly new directors, he's directed a couple of smaller indie projects. This is his big, uh, breakout. It stars, along as directed by Rafe, uh, alongside Dakota Johnson, uh, Brad Garrett, Leslie Mann pops up in there, and Vanessa Burkhardt, who I cannot wait to talk about. Uh, needless to say, we have Rafe as Andrew. He is a mid-twenties something guy. Uh, he's just made it out of college. He is dating a girl named Maya who's going abroad to do Fulbright. So he needs to work on getting money to go visit her. So how does he know that? Well, he kind of falls into bar and bat mitzvah planning. He is basically the guy who shows up at the party, begs people to have a good time, and they kind of just follow along because he's just that charming and likable. Again, we'll get to it. Uh, at one bar of Batman's, I cannot remember specifically which, but at one party, he meets uh, Dakota Johnson as Domino and her autistic daughter, Lola, played by Vanessa Burkhart. They are mostly just keeping themselves. They kind of just bring toys and, you know, come to show support. But Andrew gets them on the dance floor and gets them, you know, vibing and happy to the point of Domino basically being like, hey, you seem to be the only one who can really connect with uh, Lola. Do you want to, you know, come over and babysit sometimes? Do you want to just hang out with us? And he does. And they become like this weird kind of found family unit all while Andrew is going about his life trying to figure out what he wants to do. He's trying to be a mentor figure to his younger brother, David, played by Evan Asante, uh, dealing with his parents, again, played by Leslie Mann and Brad Garrett, uh, with Domino's uh, significant other, Joseph, played by Real Castillo. And the whole movie is just this kind of, uh, slice of life, coming of age, pseudo kind of thing about this very interesting character who, again, there's a lot to say about him, but it's about the bar about it's berserk, it's a whole thing. Noah, you are, uh, from our, you know, spoiler alert, from our pre-production meeting, you are the more positive us of the two. Uh, did you have any expectations going to this, either about the festival circuit that was coming from, about Cooper Wraith, about just Dakota Johnson picking another really interesting role? And what did you think about this movie about dancing? Dakota Johnson's filmography has to be one of the most interesting to watch, I think, just because of the way she carries herself. Absolutely. And I think she was a big reason why I got excited about this project uh, after after you flagged it to me and we both were uh, deciding on covering it. I think I had the experience really elevated because after I read that short description, maybe like when we talked about it, I sort of dropped it and then I threw it on my TV, not remembering what it was really supposed to be about. And I ended up really loving it. I think this is a film that I'm going to add to my shelf of just films. I adore um, for the types of relationships they show. Uh, Andrew is a 22 year old in the, in the movie and he's fresh out of college, kind of in that zone of, well, I'm, well, I'm home now. And I, you know, I'm done with school and some of my high school loves are still here but also I'm meeting new opportunities, both in people and in career, not careers, but in like positions as he picks up this job being a, is it jig conductor or jam conductor? I think it's jam conductor. Yeah. I part of me was thinking jig, but he's a jam conductor. And how cool is that to be the person who in, like excites everyone on the dance floor that immediately just like, it, it kind of got me interested into what this wacky story was going to be about. Um, come to realize that it, it really was going to shine in his character and his relationships with the younger actors. I think, I think that d- between Domino, which is Dakota Johnson's character um, and Andrew, it is something to like be moved by and to look out for. But I think most of the impact that I, that I felt off of the script and off of the performance, it had been between Andrew and his younger brother, David, portrayed by Evan Asante, or Andrew as he connects with Lola as her 
as her friend, but also he gets employed as her babysitter. This film has some very touching moments. Uh, oh, I mean, I need to mention Leslie Mann as yeah, Andrew's mom, who is astounding. And um, one thing I didn't expect from this movie was it's, it's it has a lightheartedness to it. And then you move further into it and you notice that they're covering topics of depression, um, topics of like being a parent to a child who is autistic, um, being an older brother and like yet still being an adult. It's like, he's, he's sort of a man child in this movie, but he has those mature moments. Um, something about this film really spoke to me. You know, I want to get to, I want to get to talking about it with you so that it can kind of, you know, come out. So Brandon, obviously I'm writing a high right now. You got to tell me and be nice. Okay. Cause I, I like this movie. <laughs> How did you feel once this once the cha cha real smooth wrapped up? I'm not gonna say anything. Um, no, like I heard a lot of the buzz coming out of Sundance, like, oh, this is so feel good and it's so charming and like you're gonna fall in love with it. And I didn't. Um, I, I didn't hate it by any stretch of the imagination. I think this is quite good. And like everyone who's identifying this movie, the second you told me in our pre-production meeting, I'm just like, oh, this totally spoke to me. Like it feels so relatable. I'm like. I've heard a lot of people say that, and I get it. Like, it does feel like that kind of thing of, if you are at a certain point in your life, like, especially at the age range that we are, a lot of that thing of, like, post-college, you know, basically just begging around town trying to figure out who will, you know, give you money and resources and a point to your life, that kind of thing is really stressful and really relatable to a lot of people. Even Andrew as a character, I found he's genuine and certainly, you know, can be funny, and when the bar and mitzvah moments happen, they are really engaging. Like, he... When he gets up to that, uh, when he steps up to those moments, it does really work. To me, though, there's this air of, like, smugness to the movie. Cooper as being a likable character as a very kind of Zach Braff, Chris Pratt thing of just like, oh, we're supposed to like this character because of what he's trying to do and not necessarily what he's saying or doing. Like, he's not doing anything really bad in the movie. There's just kind of this era of... Cooper Rafe, who again is the director of this movie, I felt like he was kind of forcing that character to be what he is. And I know that because most of the shots are him. Like there's not a moment really in this movie where he's not involved. And I kind of felt like the movie is not forcing, but again, like, yeah, I guess forcing is the best term of just like making this character more likable and more achievable than he really feels like. And that's a shame because I think the rest of the movie does have really relatable stuff to it that I, that I totally get the method behind. But I just didn't connect. There are scenes in this movie that I'm watching Cooper and I'm thinking to myself, this is a very interesting like execution on the character, like how he's delivering yep. his lines and the ways in which his character exists in the story that it flagged in my head. I wonder if this is a, you know, written by directed by starring and come to find out it was now now I'm, I kind of, I wish I could like enter your brain, Brandon, because I, I want to know like when you, when that clicked for you or if, even if it didn't click, like how, how I read his execution on the character as being sort of like, oh my gosh, this is so great. Like, this is amazing. I love to see like all of this come together. And then, you know, against your perspective, which is, this isn't really, this, this isn't as clear as yeah. to why we're focusing on this character or why we're why we're treating these moments as like big well like there's two other reasons for me and i'll try and make them quick 
One is that I think the stuff between the kids is way more interesting than the stuff between Andrew and Domino. Like, first of all, Vanessa Burkhart, who is actually autistic in real life, so there's a bit of authenticity to there. I love her character in this. I love how just quirky, but to a great relatable degree she is. She's so specific, and she absolutely knows how to make the comedy of the movie work for her. Like, she's never played up as the butt of the joke. She's always involved in the scenes. And with her character... It's her breakdown of her boundaries that I think feel more like you remember those moments more than you remember Domino, who is like sort of yes. the main love interest and in how her boundaries get broken down. I think that you're right. The the child actors here and the child, the characters and the children are, uh, they just, they they speak more. Like they, they come through better. Like, again, even going to Evan Asante, like I... <laughs> I thought for a while, especially like early on in the movie when he's giving like tips to David about like, oh, I like this girl kind of thing. I thought for a while, like, oh, maybe you should frame this around the kids. I didn't know how to think that for a while. And then I realized you could totally do that because there's something in there, especially, and this will go into like the Jewish background of the movie, which is a whole other thing that I want to get into. But it's the idea of like, oh yeah, like my older brother and my mom were friends in a bar about mitzvah. And like, I guess now we're friends now, but we don't have to like have this weird relationship. Like I can help you with these things and you can help me. And it's this weird coming of age thing. I would have loved that because also I think Asante and Burghardt are so charming and likable in their roles that they could have easily carried this weird coming of age story that is put against them and really drive it forward instead of this, oh, you know, we're coming back from the midst of depression, you know, that kind of thing like that the movie tries to focus on. And I just, I did not feel the same connection to it. Brandon, are you an older brother? Yes. Okay. Good to know. How could you um, tell? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think my Hi, parting, Ryan, if you're listening, <laughs> my parting remarks are that uh, being an older brother myself, I think that, uh, anytime Andrew took an opportunity and he does, he does take several, um, to just communicate with David and be as honest as he can as somebody who it's just so different when you're growing up and you hear one thing from your parents versus you hear something from your older sibling. And I actually really valued those moments between Andrew and his younger brother, David. He is nasty and gross to him later. Like he yeah. has that moment where he flips on him because um, his mind's clouded by emotions and by alcohol. Um, and I, and I, that part broke my heart. Really. I'm happy with the way they wrap things up. And I think ultimately uh, I, I think that that's kind of my, my parting remark is if you are an older sibling or you look at your sibling relationships with a special kind of perspective, uh, this film's going to speak to you. Let's go to ratings then. Uh, I think this is a fine six and a half. I, again, think there's good subjects here. Dakota Johnson. And again, remember the name, Vanessa Burkhardt. She is terrific in this, and I hope she gets more work. Uh, again, I hope S.D. Heim does more, you know, uh, film composite work. And I hope Cooper Rape does more films like this, because I do think there are relatable subtexts to that angle of character that can really work. I just think here... The direction of it and the writing and the framing of it did not really work for me, much less, you know, anything in terms of like Jewish perspective and culture, much less anything in terms of like the sibling dynamic that I think should be better than it actually is. Just a lot of this movie that I respect that people are loving it. And I totally get the appeal of it. It just really didn't work for me. Eight out of 10. I think that Rafe handles as much as he can here in the scope of uh, showcasing relationships, showcasing um, like reflecting on your own life when you're at a like an in-between period where you don't really know where to throw yourself and even romantically, you know, what does that look like for you when you have somebody um, from your past in like a, a fling, but also this person who you would not regularly get with, but situationally you've been connected and now you have to figure out what that relationship means. Um, 
yeah, I think this still remains a movie that I'm going to adore and I will probably revisit it uh, with some friends and family later and just, uh, you know, kind of joy over it all. And of course, uh, Chateau Real Smooth is streaming on Apple TV. It'll be probably a big talk of awards and end of year season for a lot of people, including, you know, my co-host. Go at it about your own risk. Now let's move on to Pixar's latest in light year. Okay, hold on a second. Uh, yellow. All, all right. Um, Noah, it's for you. Is something about a black phone? Oh, yes, baby. I am here to pick up that black phone with my solo review. I don't know. They sounded pretty sketchy. I don't know if I'd do that if I were you. Uh, uh, Brandon, this is the horror space, so if you could so kindly. um, I'll leave it to you. So we are talking the black phone. Uh, This is from director Scott Derrickson, who I did not know going into this, but as you watch this film, I'm just going to spoiler alert. It's freaking great. I think this film is amazing. I think it's exactly what I needed and what horror fans need at a time where the last great horror piece that we really received in theatrical was going to be the cursed starring Kelly Relly, Boyd Holbrook. You know, it's a whole other film. Y'all need to go see that movie about a werewolf. It is actually amazing. We are talking The Black Phone from Scott Derrickson. Yes, the director of Sinister. Yes, the director of Doctor Strange, based off of a short story uh, by Joe Hill. So this here is the summary. I'm going to read it off of IMDb. After being abducted by a child killer and locked in a soundproof basement, a 13-year-old boy starts receiving calls on a disconnected phone from the killer's previous victims. That is all you have to enter the story with. And based off the trailers, it doesn't really give you much else off of that. All you know is that um, once this young boy in Mason Thames plays Finney, once Finney is abducted by someone that the town calls the grabber, mind you, this takes place in the 70s. So I think that that's perfectly fitting for the type of atmosphere it's giving where um, some of these parents are not you know, they're not helicopter parents. They're not really watching their child's every move. Their child is free to walk to and from school. And I think there's just a lot of misplaced trust that involves in some of these communities in the seventies. So it's opportune time for somebody like not Ethan Hawke, but Ethan Hawke's character, the grabber to just haunt this neighborhood. Um, children are being abducted. Uh, we learned later that the children who have been abducted and killed by the grabber, are able to speak to the living through this phone. Whoa, I just got chills. I know you did too. Um, Good concept. It's an amazing concept. And the story moves. You know, this is going to be spoiler free because, I mean, there's really nothing major to shock you by by the end of it. It's just the steps the movie takes, the actions it provides for Finney, and I think the dialogue also between Finney and the deceased – There's some world building here in terms of is Finney a medium? Is there something else at play here? Like, why is this phone even capable of contacting the dead? Another very strong question that I had going into this or in the middle of watching it was, why was there no attention placed on Finney's sister? Yes, Finney has a sister in this film. Her name is Gwen. She is played by Madeline McGraw. And for those of you who do not know, and if you haven't seen it, you don't know, she is sort of clairvoyant. Like there's a mention in the script that her mother used to be able to see images in her dreams and that they would come true. And so when Gwen, the sister, starts mentioning that She's seeing certain things affiliated with the grabber and his victims. It, it, it's giving you this inclination that, whoa, there's a whole supernatural element. Yes. In the phone, but also 
with Finney's family. So I think that that's just so exciting. Does the script or the movie ever really tell you why or like build it up to be some huge backstory? No. And it doesn't need to. This movie has all you need to jump right in, watch this abduction story, watch this hero in Finney fight for his life, um, see Gwen, the sister who has lost her brother, really fight herself. And they have an abusive father who um, also is an alcoholic. Very tight moments to shine here and shine she does. I cannot wait to see more of McGraw, uh, whether she explores other titles in horror or if she totally expands. I just think this was a perfect introduction to her as well as Finney. Finney is so much fun to watch. Um, he really pulls off the emotion of, yes, it feels like I'm doomed, but I still have to fight. And I think watching him, I just believed it. And we talked Firestarter a couple weeks back. And I said, you know, I'm not really for child actors being at the center of a horror title here. Absolutely. I am like, give me all that back. Uh, there are some additional characters that I think are worth mentioning for one Knowing that this is a Scott Derrickson project, we have Ethan Hawke playing the grabber and he returns from the sinister title. And then we have James Ranson, who was the deputy and ex-deputy in the other sinister titles, Sinister One and Sinister Two. He plays a character uh, this time named Max, who is kind of the conspiracy theorist or like the neighborhood like detective, because when he's finally visited by some of the detectives for real. Uh, he's the one who has like pieces of string aligning his walls. He has all these newspaper clippings. Like he's the one tracing the grabber. Um, he's hilarious. He has a couple of moments that I think uh, completely work for like this wacky character's inclusion. But part of me feels that he was included because it was Derrickson. Is Max, you know, his character really needed in this story? I would argue absolutely not. However, it was a pleasure just to know that uh, this director is bringing in people he loves. It is only an hour and 43 minutes. Um, was I crippled by fear in my seat because I didn't know what was going to happen? No, this isn't that kind of movie. It is very thrilling and it, it holds you in your seat because you don't know what's going to come of Finney's situation. You don't know what that next call is going to be. But soon after the first couple calls, you get the vibe of what Finney needs to do to overcome his situation. Uh, last point, I think, worth mentioning, or one of my final points is going to be in the grabber's design. He has an interchangeable mask. Sometimes he takes off the horns that exist on top. Sometimes he swaps out the faces so that they look more menacing or they look... Um, just like devilish in a way. Uh, I love the way that they played with the mask. I think that Ethan Hawke knows exactly the role that he's playing. So all the kudos and flowers to him. We just saw him in Disney Plus's uh, Moon Knight, where I think, you know, I was like, is he shining here? I don't know about that. But the black phone, he knows the role he's playing and he does so. He executes it wonderfully. My rating for the black phone is, you know, I love horror. You know, I love a focus story that gives us just enough to jump right into it. I think for this horror title, I kind of want to go high, Brandon. I'm going to give this, I mean, what the hell? I'm going to give this a nine. I think it's a nine out of 10 oh. uh, so far. That is like my highest horror. I think I've maybe I've ever rated on the what pod. Because I was going to say, this year alone, we've gotten this, X, The Cursed, all which you've liked. Oh, yeah. that's I, I for, totally forgot about X. Um, if I had to choose The Cursed or X, I'm going to choose The Cursed. I said it. Sure. Okay. So <laughs> uh, The Black Phone is going to be a solid nine for me, and it is in theaters now, should you want to check it out. Uh, 
I can't wait for Derrickson's next project. He is clearly uh, just like Mike Flanagan. Um, you know, I can't wait for him to be a name that I can recite off the top of my head when it comes to horror directors to watch. And he's another one. I was just going to say, I and mean, just this won't be too long, but like the idea that Derrickson, you know, came from horror, made this kind of pivot into blockbuster filmmaking with Doctor Strange that most people, I think, generally liked, and then just took six years off. And then was attached to the sequel of Doctor Strange. Yes. And, you know, who knows the story he could have brought there, but I'm telling you the story he brought to the Black Phone, he adapted another, a short story, and he really turned it into something that I think horror fans are going to eat up. We are moving now to the skies, to infinity and beyond. That's right. We're talking Lightyear. Um, but Brandon, this isn't the story about Buzz Lightyear the toy. What is oh, no. this a story about? So Lightyear is not the Tim Allen version of Buzz Lightyear from the Toy Story movies. I mean, it is, but it also isn't. There's been a lot of confusion. Let's just run it down again. It's basically Angus McLean and Pete Docter and the whole Pixar movie going, what was the movie that Andy saw as a kid? This is the movie. Uh, it's, of course, directed by Angus McLean, as I already mentioned, who uh, I believe co-directed Finding Dory. Uh, he's worked on a couple storyboards for other Pixar movies, but I think that's the one that I remember him from. Now we have Chris Evans in the role of Buzz Lightyear, again, the action hero from the movie version. It tells of a future where Buzz Lightyear is once again a space ranger in Star Command. His best friend, Alicia Hawthorne, here played by Uzo Duba. They're kind of like the back and forth, you know, tag team of everything. They are stuck on a deserted planet after something Buzz does. You know, I won't spoil it if you've seen it, but, you know, it's basically his fault. Um, They're trying to get off the planet. They're experimenting with, you know, warp speed and hyperspeed tech. And Buzz volunteers for the, uh, for the, for the fuel project. But in a basically twist a la Interstellar, every time he goes up to test, um, several years, if not several decades, have passed on the planet below, meaning that uh, that Alicia and everyone else have already aged, that they're, you know, basically, they're waiting a long time for this one flight to work. Um, you know what? Okay, I, I will say more. I will try and be trepidatious about it because there's a weird amount of twists in this. Needless to say, we jump to a test flight many years later. Buzz has overshot the, you know, couple of years. Now it's 20-something years. We meet Alicia's daughter, Izzy, voiced by Kiki Palmer, along with her merry band of misfits, uh, Taika Waititi as Mo, uh, Dale Sewells as Darby, and Peter Stone, uh, of course, a Pixar director in his own right, voicing Socks, the robotic cat companion of Buzz. It's kind of therapy cat. It's a whole thing. And thus becomes a thing of what has happened in the last 20 years. What threats do we need to face? And, you know, can Buzz step up and, you know, work with a team instead of, you know, being, in, you know, in his own ego? Um, Noah, over to you. This is a weird film to talk about, and people have been trying to talk about it, and it seems like over-talking about it a little bit, even though it's underperformed at the box office. What did you think of Lightyear? Brandon said it right out the gate. He said, this is the movie that Andy saw as a kid. Yes. So big 90s action space movie. You would never know that going into this. Like, if... If Birds of Prey, the emancipation of one fantabulous Harley Quinn, was a complete misfire in terms of titling to relate audiences to the fact that it was a DC title, this is another move like that. Like, you have a movie titled Lightyear, families, mature audiences are going to show up and go, wait, this has, like, this is not a movie about a toy. Like, this is a movie about a base man who now is experiencing interstellar kind of like time burdens. Um, I'm not surprised of the rating that I see right now on IMDb. Um, but th- there are things to say here that I think um, 
it, you know, I tried to watch this with a child's eye. I tried to tell myself, you know what, Noah, 24 year old man, and you're talking about Lightyear and taking it seriously. Go sit down in the back. Go get another jalapeno case for your popcorn. Well, you know what, Noah? I'm not okay. I'm going to talk about Lightyear because I grew up adoring Toy Story. Toy Story 3 came out on my birthday you know how monumental that was for me if a movie comes out around my birthday i am like it speaks to me uh prometheus came out on my birthday as well cars also came out on my birthday moving on brandon what came out on your birthday rapid fire go i was gonna say uh this is gonna be a joke i'm just like oh you had cars prometheus i had fly meets the moon you remember that movie (laughs) hey i hope that it spoke volumes for you okay it did at the time we're moving on (laughs) okay light year it's not about the toy, first fault. Tried to watch it with a child's eye, yet still it made my child self like upset. Um, I think it completely taints what I imagined Zerg to be and how I imagined Zerg to like oppose Buzz. I think it kind of rips some of the world that Buzz could have existed in because we do explore this alien planet and we do see like some pretty interesting um environments some hostiles that exist there there's like this vine entity that exists on the planet that they're trying to keep safe from and i think if they would have explored more of the alien territory we had a better film here i don't mind the cast of characters i don't mind the addition of kiki palmer journeying with buzz on this adventure but it just doesn't feel like a buzz story it kind of feels like a sci-fi like family sci-fi story that could have been plugged with different characters there's an additional character here that you would never guess is needed in a light year movie and that is socks portrayed by peter son socks is a robotic cat who can do anything Basically, <laughs> basically, socks is the Deus Ex Machina of the, the this entire. Ex, the Deus Ex Sockina, the Deus Ex Sockina of this entire story. If there is a threat in front of Buzz and he's caught off guard, all of a sudden socks can fire tranquilizer darts out of their mouth. If there is an algorithm that needs the best scientist to figure it out. Leave Socks alone with some kind of doohickey device for 62 years. Socks will figure it out. The way to get out of it is just to have like a, a talking cat robot. Like that, that's the vibe that I felt watching this. Um, also, I think that <laughs> I don't think that Buzz is even the hero in this story. I think a lot of the heroism comes from Izzy Hawthorne, which is the Hawthorne granddaughter of the original that was Buzz's best friend, uh, played by Kiki Palmer. It just feels like the story really like shifts her perspective to be grander than Buzz's. Like Buzz is very like he's the hero. He believes he is. So he wants to go out and face any obstacle he can for the betterment of his people but he wants to do it solo so that nobody else is at risk that being said izzy has no problem picking up the helmet like taking the helm um or taking the reins sorry and like guiding a team to success and i liked that balance of the two however it never felt equal on buzz's side like it didn't really feel like buzz had much to do in this movie because the cat was saving him or izzy had a better idea what notes do you have it's disappointing because I think this is actually a genuinely fun movie. 
on big grand scale issues, I said this in my tweet review, like, I think families will eat this up, which sucks that families have not gone in droves to go see this, because I do think this is really family friendly. It's got a lot of great action to it. I think the characters are fun. I think Chris Evans, with what he's asked to do with this incarnation of Buzz, really works. You know, I think visually it's great. And I know we talk about that like every time a new Pixar or Disney company has a, comes out of just like, oh, look at the animation. They're, you know, stepping up. And I'm like, no, this is really good. Like the hyperspace stuff is beautiful. I think you mentioned the um, Takani Prime stuff. Like the planet itself is not uninteresting. There's stuff there to it. I like what they do with the, you know, the Zerg robots, the Zerg mythology, maybe not, but the actual like robotic designs I think are neat. Um, the Zerg mythology, dude. We're not talking about that right now. Um, but going back to the idea of Toy Story of, you know, when we see Buzz first pop up after he's, you know, before he gets reprogrammed, essentially, that idea of, yeah, he's a one-man army, or at least he thinks he is. And, yeah, this is consistent with that, and it makes total sense as to why that would be the thing. There's also some really fun kind of Easter eggs for Toy Story fans. There's something with a cone. There's something with, you know, not a pizza, but, like, a spaceship kind of thing. So, like, there's things in there for fans like us to be like, oh, that's Oh, my gosh, yeah. Yeah, Brandon, thank you for pointing that out. The whole cone thing, what the heck? Yeah, like, I even saw that. I was like, oh, you're doing it. Cool. Um, I, I really like Kiki Palmer in this. She gets to be a lot of fun in this. Um, something I don't think Taika Waititi gets to do. I think he's kind of just has to do his dry comedy thing and for what it's worth. Uh, Uzo Aduba gets one really good scene towards, like, the middle of the movie, I think. It's the scene with her and Buzz in the office that I think is really great. Um, but again, like, overall, it's, you know, we mentioned Interstellar. We mentioned other Pixar Disney movies. We mentioned all these other stories that I think Buzz feels derivative. And it shouldn't feel that. It should feel exciting and, you know, based in spectacle. And I think that's what Angus McClain and his team were going for. And I enjoyed it for what it was. But I also acknowledge that it is not special on that lane, at least not in the context of the Toy Story movies. I'm going to cut the ribbon on our spoiler section. Okay, Ready? I'll make a note. We're going into spoilers, okay? Let's talk about the fact that Zerg is old buzz what yeah they, what? they did that that was a choice you could tell me that zerg is the darth vader of this story and i go hell yeah because it makes it believable he has tantrums in his like commander ship his commander ship is like its own fleet it's gigantic in the sky and when buzz says that he has to take it out before they can escape this planet you think, oh my gosh, this is such a major threat. I can't wait for the action. He's like Kylo Ren, like he slashes everything in his ship. They introduce the idea of an old buzz because of a mistrajectory on another timeline and he inserted into here. It's a lot. You're expected to just pick up and go with this movie. So why are we, why are you introducing a concept to me that's going to take me minutes after the scene is over to think, so who is he? And like, why do I care? It grinds the movie to a halt. And I, I should say this. I am not opposed to unmasking Zerg. I'm not opposed to making, Neither am I. Yeah, like making a different incarnation of the character. And again, even if you were going to that 90s movie, it adds to the sense of kind of melodrama of like, my God, it's myself and what will I become? That was very much of like 90s blockbusters kind of thing. And I don't even necessarily mind the idea of it being an older buzz. Like it's not the greatest idea, but at the very least I could see where they were going. And I, I don't mind the design. Like it's not fancy at all. Like it's very much buzz in his most decrepit and, you know, dire straits. But the way they do it, it just, again, it, it drags the movie, it stalls, and basically goes, let's give five minutes for backstory in a movie that is already struggling to keep its pace. You mentioned Peter Sohn. I think add him up with DeWanda Wise in Jurassic World or like Colin Farrell in The Batman for scene stealer of the year, 
every moment that Sox is on screen is fantastic. I was going to say, you'd think that the Buzz toy was just like a mockery for the bigger toy, which would be socks in the yeah. Toy <laughs> universe. Because based off of this film, if this is the film that Andy watched, I'd ask Andy, Andy, why didn't you get the cat? Andy, he- why didn't you buy the cat toy? Because the cat does more, has more, can be more than what Buzz is by the end of this movie. Well, okay. Go, go again, to- I'm a 20, again, I'm a 24 year old man trying to comment on this children's movie. I was going to say, go back to when you were 10 years old. If you saw like big space ranger with guns and jetpacks versus like a cat that hacks things in the nineties. If you're ready for ratings, Brandon, I am too. Let's get into it. Uh, for me, this is a solid seven. I enjoyed this thoroughly. I, I know, I know that's probably way too kind. Uh, let me agree. It is nowhere near the Toy Story movies, even at their worst. It is really disappointing when it comes to a script perspective. It grinds to a halt in the third act. And I think even its comedy lane, I don't think it really works. But I think, again, it takes the Buzz Lightyear character in a new direction. I admire the direction it takes. I don't mind the camaraderie and, you know, learning to work together angle of it. I think for families, it's a great action spectacle that really works visually. It goes towards anything Pixar has done. But again, it's just really derivative. It should be a lot better than it is. And I don't blame people for missing out on it, even if I think when it comes on Disney Plus, it's worth a watch. Much like receiving a toy on Christmas, you know, on the front, it says jetpack propulsion. The wings pop out. He shoots lasers out of his wrists. Only, and it only runs off of three AAA batteries. You open up the box and it says batteries not included. This movie, much like the toy it is based on, is lifeless. It's hollow. Batteries are not included in Lightyear. And for that, I'm giving it a 5.5 out of 10. Because, Brandon, because it was lower, but I bumped it up because I I respect your words and I actually like what you had to say. Um, Pretty kind. It's honestly, it's still pretty kind. I think if you have an opportunity, listeners, to go see Lightyear, um, you know, return to those nostalgic feelings of when you watch Toy Story, but do not expect the same kind of impact. Expect kind of like a lighthearted sci-fi flick with a lot of focus placed on a cat. So if you're a cat lover, you will have a hell of a good time enjoying socks on screen. But that being said, don't expect Toy Story. Now, here's a story that does not focus on a cat, but instead elevates a hound dog, baby. Uh... We are talking... Brandon, <laughs> we are talking Elvis freaking Presley. Brandon, let's talk Austin Butler. Let's talk, let's talk Tom Hanks. We got an Elvis biopic. And am I wrong in saying this is like, how long has it been since we got the last one? To no knowledge well, of my memory. It feels like this is the latest, like big Elvis story. And the movie's three hours long. It's big. Well, I was going to say, if you count uh, Elvis and Nixon from a couple of years, it's only been like six, seven years, I forget when that came out. Um, but no, we had the Kurt Russell one from the 70s. Um, we had Jack White's interpolation in the Walk Hard Dewey Cox story, which I have a fond spot for. Uh, there's been many annotations. Um, do you, are you coming into this believing that this is the best iteration of him? Or is this just a particular iteration of him? I think of the ones I've seen, and we'll get into you know, positive and negatives, this is the best acting portrayal of Elvis I've ever seen. Can't wait to hear more. So let's get into this. This is the latest from Mr. Baz Luhrmann, who, if you're familiar with him, I always go back to uh, Jeremy Johnson's review of The Great Gatsby, where he says, and Baz Luhrmann is like, if you took a director, he's like, let's make a movie. But first, let's take some acid. And now let's make a movie. 
Three, and that's basically Baz Luhrmann, uh, but fun and wild and often inconsistent. Uh, we'll get into it later. This is, again, his latest project, his first feature film in, I think, nine years since Great Gatsby came out. Uh, it stars Austin Butler, who you might know from things like uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, from the Shannara Chronicles, if you were a fan of that, from a lot of, like, Disney Nick stuff as a kid. This is, for lack of a better term, his breakout role. I, I, spoiler, he's fantastic in this. He portrays Elvis... From basically all stages of his life, starting when he was a young kid in Memphis, uh, getting a lot of inspiration from the black community in there, especially from B.B. King, who was played by uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr., and his discovery by one Colonel Tom Parker, played by the one and only Tom Hanks, a uh, expat from Holland who is a carny at large who is trying anything to get rich quick. He sees Elvis' performance at a... Um, the talent exhibition is like you. I, I'm not going to do his accent, but you know, you you will you know be the greatest star on earth. And Elvis, of course, like no, I won't. And Tom's like, yes, you will. And basically does whatever is means necessary to do it. And the film kind of explores the 30 to 40 year collaboration between the two, often for worse, but sometimes for better, for whatever it's worth. We see the relationship between Elvis and his uh, eventual wife Priscilla, played by Olivia Dijon. We see again uh, supporting players from people like David Wenham and Cody Fee. But again, the primary focus of the movie is between Elvis and Colonel Parker and the often toxic means of fame and relationship between the two and how Elvis became, for a lot of people, the biggest star in the world for a long time. Uh, for me, I was coming into this with pretty good expectations. I mean, it was on my top five most anticipated of the year because, again, as I said during that list, and I've said to a lot of people just in real life, Baz Luhrmann does not always make the best movies, but he never makes boring movies. And so I was coming into this thinking I would at least be entertained for however the two-and-a-half-hour monstrosity that it is. And you know what? While I will not go as far as to call it good, I was never bored. And I really was impressed by a lot of the strokes that it does take. It is not a historical telling by any means. It skips over a lot, and it idolizes way more than it examines, and I'm still kind of pissed off at that, let alone just really annoyed by it. But I think it's entertaining for what it is, and we will get into Austin Butler, but he is a lot. Uh, Noah, over to you. Uh, it was not on your top five most anticipated. So did you have the same level of expectations that I did? Did you have the same knowledge of Elvis coming into it? And what do you think about all this to preface my sort of reaction, I think that I'm mostly thumbs up on Elvis. You know, I can't wait to discuss a lot of the details here because this is a a long and large movie. Um, definitely has the weight of an epic. Uh, I can't really say if it benefited off of the like dual focus of Tom Hanks and Austin Butler, but it definitely needed it for the story they were trying to tell that primarily focused on the relationship between Elvis and his manager in Colonel Tom Park in Colonel Tom Parker uh, portrayed by Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks. I'm not entirely behind the voice. I think that what he was doing was what he did, but watching the film, I think that that's one of the most distracting elements of it is you have a big name like Tom Hanks and you know how he sounds like, I mean, his, this is the voice of freaking Woody and you have him doing this like very creepy narration about the life of Elvis and all the turns he took, uh, both when he entered his life, as well as these moments where Tom Parker Colonel was not even involved. So I think that the film has chapters to it, except those chapters are Although they're broken up, I think sort of neatly, uh, definitely visually engaging. I love that this is uh, 
a movie about the Vegas sensation, the international sensation, right, of Elvis. And it feels like that as it transitions between its scenes. It has so much, I think, um, of that, I don't know, stardom aesthetic or like everything is its own specific typography because that was really um, a thing of its time. Showy colors, like television, like this is a golden age for someone to really rise up in fame. Um, as much as it is, as it is that, it is a reflection on what stardom meant to an individual as well as how miscommunicated it can be on the large media. I mean, this is a time where you don't have your own like Twitter feeds or uh, internet systems to understand for yourself what some of these situations were majority of the public just received their information about a star like Elvis through headlines, through different forms of media that appeared on papers and of course on television. Um, or even just word of mouth, like, Oh my God, I saw him at the show and you need to see him. That's exactly how Colonel first even discovers Elvis, but focusing on the Colonel for at least this beginning of the conversation, he is the narrator of the story. He is breaking up all the chapters of Elvis's life from the moment they met to his ultimate death. It's burdened by that. It's burdened by this villainous person coming back time and time again to remind you that they are the one that are, is really siphoning life from Elvis. And it has you question by the end of it, what led to Elvis's death, uh, whether that was his own struggles with addiction, or if it was Colonel Tom Parker's decision about how Elvis can manage his career. And I think that it, it's left with a question that you already know the answer to. I absolutely think Colonel Tom Parker is the villain in this and his decisions pressured a young evolving Elvis to just conform to what he felt was like his life now. Like he, he stardom no longer was a choice of his. It was the only option, honestly. Uh, Brandon, just to keep the conversation focused, because there is a lot to talk about here. Let's focus on Colonel Tom Parker and Tom Hanks's iteration on the character, uh, how it fit in the story and whether you felt like you felt, whether you felt rewarded by that portrayal. It's the biggest criticism I have with the movie, which is that number one, you're right. Tom Hanks is doing a thing. I have seen some people really, really enjoy it. I've seen a lot of people really despise it. I am more on the negative side. I don't hate it necessarily because I think he is leaning into the machinations of the character more. And I appreciate that. I don't think the accent works at all, but I appreciate the actual like direction of performance that he and Baz Luhrmann are talking about. Just like, yeah, he is always there. He's always in some presence and he always has to be on that level of showmanship, even more to a certain degree than Elvis is. And I respect that. I just don't necessarily like it. And the fact that it's so much framed from his perspective means that we get a lot of Elvis's story stunted to the background. As we explore more and more of Elvis's rise to stardom, we get to experience like what that meant for his family initially, and then what that meant to his own family, like uh, in Priscilla and in his own daughter, his rewards or, you know, the money he was making and just gambling with it. Like, like he's not even building something for him and Elvis to enjoy. He's just being a, a, a weasel, you know, he's and so building, he's building an empire. He's not building an artist. Right. Oh my gosh. Yes. That is a, one of the biggest parts of this Colonel Tom Parker is he is banking off of what he calls merchandise. Like he's smacking Elvis's face on 
every goddamn thing, whether it's a pillow, whether you point at it in your room, he put Elvis's face on it. And, and of course the story behind the legendary, I love Elvis. I hate buttons thing to like, just make more money from the detractors. I like the way the movie positioned that moment for us where they were like, Colonel is a smart man. Like he is a smart business person who is going to bank off of whatever situation he's in, no matter if that's somebody's life or if it's like this other area. Um, I mean, for God's sakes, the movie literally starts, you know, like spoiler at the very end when he is more worried about getting Elvis on stage than his actual well-being. Like that should tell you something. And it is so disgusting that, Elvis would later look to this figure almost like a father. You know, he would look at Colonel as if he was someone to take care of him and to guard him. And all you see behind the scenes when Elvis isn't around is Colonel just taking advantage, signing deals away, but without Elvis's knowledge, it is excellently put together. I think um, in, in between like where they place some of Elvis's most iconic songs. Um, one of the major moments is going to be when um the assassin, the assassination of MLK happens and he puts on that performance. Uh, it's like a Christmas performance, but he sings if I can dream. And I thought that that was one of the pivotal moments for the film for me where I went, okay, like I, I love, I like Elvis's music. Do I think it moves me? You know, burn in love. I think, you know, it, there's a couple of them there. Can't but I, in love. Yes, absolutely. I'm surprised they didn't spend more time on that, but no, they didn't. Talking about if I can dream uh, and where they positioned it in the film, uh, it it definitely gave me this alternate perspective that Elvis's career and his like as he moved through success, he was never or you know I, I don't want to speak insensitively, but I want to say like he was never partial to the influence from the black community, um, and I thought that that was at least prevalent in the movie. Would you agree? Kind of. And I, again, the question of Elvis's relationship with the black community is way too murky for either us to get into and frankly for this movie to get into. And God bless it, it tries. Like, I think one of my favorite moments in the movie, even though it has no historical basis, is that small jam session between Elvis, uh, Sister Rosetta Sharp and Little Richard that like is like two minutes long, but it's one of the best moments. And it's just the thing of like, my God, what if that had happened? Like, what if those people had, you know, traded notes and like that? Um, and I like the relationship between him and B.B. King, like this kind of friendly back and forth that I think the movie needs because the family angle is going to do it. Certainly Tom Parker is going to do it, but like he can go to, you know, Beale Street and have that sense of comfort. It is a very surface level take about it. I think it's much more the idea of like, oh, you know, Elvis wasn't, you know, ripping off black culture. He was just, you know, uh, he was giving it to the masses. No, there's a lot more complicated question in terms of like cultural appropriation and what he was actually doing in this movie wants to get into at all. But I admire the pieces that's there and the people who are asked to act that are doing it well. Let's talk about Elvis. Let's talk about Austin Butler, who is incredible. He's so good in this. Also, good Orange County kid, hometown. I, I respect it. I never knew. Oh him, my gosh. <laughs> um, but no, he is amazing in this. And like, I've been hearing his name for a while. Like, I don't know, but you like, I saw him once upon a time in Hollywood. I'm like, okay, so he's starting to like get some nice roles. This is incredible. And like, you hear the stories about him physically preparing for the role. And, you know, you hear his voice, at least in the younger incarnations of Elvis. He nails, of course, the performances. To me, I think the best thing about his performance is Elvis's sense of shyness. There is a sense of 
of um, of like closing off the rest of the world and that sense of isolation, especially in the second half of the movie that I think he just nails. Like there's such a sadness and tragedy to that side of the character that I was just fascinated by. Like the whole Vegas section, I think is just this thing of debauchery and, you know, loneliness that I think Baz Luhrmann is just reveling in. And Austin Butler, God bless him, is completely up to task. Like he does wonderful things with this. My experience with Austin Butler prior to this, uh, at the mention of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, yes, I saw him there. Uh, I'm aware that he was in the Shannara uh, Chronicles, but I really hadn't had a piece of media in front of me that said, like, here, look at Austin Butler act until this one was announced. Especially considered, like, Ansel Elgort and, like, Harry Styles and, like, big names were in talk for this. And Baz Luhrmann was just like, you, you're going to be Elvis. It was convincing immediately. It wasn't like Tom Hanks's voice where I was like, Ooh, like, I just feel you for, I feel you doing it. Um, Butler really shines in his Elvis portrayal in his early days. I think that they nail the look, um, each time he enters, uh, a room filled with people. I just was looking at the clothes he was wearing. Uh, I think that the movie needs you to believe that he was this figure that just shook up ladies and like made them feel, I mean, ladies and they even have a scene of like guys kind of adoring him too, but ladies, especially just being so, I don't know, like overwhelmed, um, overwhelmed by the way this man was moving. And it was like the shaking of the hips, the jiving, the gyrating. And um, I think it spends so much time on those reactions, but Towards the, I mean, by the time I got to the end of the movie, everything else packed in, in addition to that made me forget about it. Like made me forget about some of these moments where I was like, eh, like I didn't really enjoy that. No, Austin Butler is such a joy to watch in this. Um, it's lovely that he has this major, major biopic now under his belt. Um, it's a shame that he's kind of like burdened with the constant re-entry of Colonel Tom Parker um, Elvis's character, that is. But uh, I think that he does what he needs to here, and he knocks it out the park. Absolutely. I think it's not even the whole Tom Parker thing. I just think, I, I think it's more of like, you know, it's still Mandy Walker's cinematography. It's still Matt Villa's editing and still Baz Luhrmann's directing. Like, that formula is so specific and fast cut. And credit to, again, Luhrmann for making this movie go by as fast as it does. It's two and a half hours, and it feels way quicker than that. But I think even that approach is jarring and a lot of a lot. It's throwing a lot in your face, especially if you're vaguely familiar with with the idolization aspect of Elvis. And even the, towards the second act, like it feels like every scene is propping him up as this like musical deity. And obviously Butler is up to the task and God bless him for it. Like I think he just does so much to make Elvis a person rather than a deity, but he is working against a script and tone that wants him to be everything else. I think that's a really difficult thing to do. There's a lot to say about, you know, I I wouldn't mention this unless it was noticeable. So this is what I want to mention is like the actual coloring of these scenes, like whether it was Beale Street or it was um, the actual like International Hotel or the Christmas special. I just think there were so many moments throughout this film that I thought, damn, like these colors really feel of the time. They feel appropriate. They are placing me there. I'm not doubting where I am. I'm not questioning my environments at all. I'm watching Elvis move through his life. And that, if if you don't have to like, if you don't stop a movie in the middle of its runtime and go like, oh, like it's kind of taking me out of it, major bonus. And here, I just think that that was something I jotted down. So I had to mention. For me, I go back and forth. I think... Uh, 
I really want to be nicer to this because I see what Baz Luhrmann is doing. And anytime we get another movie from him, I'm happy. I still have to give it a seven and a half, though. Make no mistake, if you are at all a fan of Baz Luhrmann's style, if you have seen any of his projects, whether it's Romeo plus Juliet or Ray Gatsby or anything like that, if you are even mildly curious about Austin Butler's portrayal, go see this. You will have an absolute time. The musical numbers are enough to satisfy. Again, it's two and a half hours and it flies by. And again, I cannot stress enough. Butler makes Elvis personable in ways that I was not thinking. Lerman never makes the movie boring. It's not an approach that will work for everyone. I really wish it did delve into a lot more given its, you know, runtime and given its frantic nature of it all. And I really just don't know what Tom Hanks is doing here, but it's worth a watch. It's a, it's a curiosity. It takes Elvis in a new direction. And I think it's worth seeing if you had, if you are at all curious about the story or the approach. My rating is going to be a seven and a half out of 10. I think. It just reminded me of all that was believed and associated with Vegas at the time, which was like, this is the spot to come for entertainment in the world. Um, I think that the inclusion of Colonel Tom Parker does kind of weigh it down that I think that does take part into my lower rating here. You know, it would have been higher had his involvement been less. Um, but I think that it's totally overshadowed by the performance that Butler gives, the uh, costuming that it's done here, the the storytelling and how it's broken up, even with a monstrous runtime, um, seven and a half for me. I mean, look, if Baz Luhrmann wanted to make a movie about excess and idolization and the dangers of fame, I guess job well done. But we're right. It's very specific. Uh, Elvis is, is playing exclusively in theaters right now. It will be on HBO Max, I believe, in like the next month or so. So you won't have to wait that long if you don't want to see it in theaters. Uh, but yeah, it's certainly something. Brandon, we're going to pack up our bags and leave the strip for a while. We are diving into our TV stream wars nonsense. What do you call this? It's a couple of different platforms. I don't know. Today we are talking Netflix titles, Hulu, Disney Plus, starting the conversation, Brandon, take it away with an introduction to season three of the Umbrella Academy. We are discussing episode one. The Umbrella Academy has returned to Netflix, or has it? Uh, if you, spoil it, we're getting into spoilers for season one and two, so if you have not watched those, we kind of have to for this. Um, you used to say, I had to go back because I kind of forgot the events of season two. It's been a while since I watched it. Um, but basically the end of the world happened and the gang had to go back in time to Dallas. The Umbrella siblings have now found themselves in an altered timeline where their brother Ben, once again played by Justin H. Min, is alive, but is much more aggressive and assertive and a member of the Sparrow Academy, which is a group of children that, uh, Hargreaves adopted in vain of the Umbrella siblings just to kind of smite them. He kind of makes a joke at them in the obvious, uh, early episode. It's a new group of eccentric, superpowered youth who have to go up against the Umbrella Academy. There's a whole fight that we'll get into. And then a lot of just twists and turns. Like the Umbrella Academy guys basically have no home now. They kind of have to fend for themselves. They're wondering what they need to do now as some sort of temporal anomaly is going on beneath the uh, the Hargreaves Manor that, um, oh God, the mother... Uh, in all fairness, there is a lot of names. We have already like the seven members of the original yeah. Umbrella Academy. And then there's seven more for the Pharaoh Academy. One of them is a gel- like a gelatinous cube, but it's not gelatinous. He's yes. just the big cube. There's a cube in this show. Um, I meant to say Grace, uh, a.k.a. Mom, the robot built by Hargreaves, who kind of idolizes this weird temporal anomaly that no one seems to know about as of yet. But I'm sure it will be a major thing going on the season. Uh, Noah, this will be a very weird pilot just because, again, Going into it, I'm not sure how much of season two remember as compared to me. The Umbrella Kids having to step up and figure out what their lives are going to be now was going to be an issue. What did you think of the first episode? 
it's weird. It's like, I didn't have high expectations. I just had comfort. Like I, I had security knowing how the show is being handled so far is it's consistent. Like if you've watched season one and you know that it's for you, I believe that season two and three's introduction is still going to be that same atmosphere, that same kind of uh nature of the group that you, that you have, that you're focused on. Um And that's really how I entered season three. I was like, I know that I enjoyed season one. I know that I, I enjoyed season two, uh, maybe a little less so, but I still was excited about the inventiveness of this series, the constant, like, um, there's just so, when I say inventiveness, I think that I could just stamp a period on there because that's, that's what I really believe the show does so well. And then at two's cliffhanger, we were introduced to this whole other academy that you start believing like, wait, so are there more of you? Like what's, what is really going on here? And one of my favorite moments, probably I'll have to watch the rest of the series, of course, but in this pilot episode, the, there's a freaking dance battle that happens. And I think it's what this opening episode needed to just remind fans, Hey, we know that we know who you are. We know what you've loved up to this point here is a gift to you. Uh, the fact that it all ends up being like a, <laughs> an illusion or almost like a, uh, a fantasy of. It's the one Di- who spits. Of Diego's. Yes. It's, there is a sparrow who spits and it can cause hallucinations, but like very euphoric hallucinations, or at least that's what it seems like. Um, who knows if she can shift it, uh, either that direction. Would, that would be a Cassie David as Jamie. Um, there is an excellent dance battle that occurs all within Diego's mind, but it is too footloose and it is excellent. And it's I so think great. It, it honestly, it, it made me wish that that's really how these two were going to be fighting. Um, then of course the groups break out into an absolute like one V one. Vanya's like up against three. Diego's chasing the cube the entire time, throwing knives at it. And it is just ridiculous. And I think that that's what the Umbrella Academy is. Um, I'm not. And of course be- Klaus is doing something. Where is Klaus throughout the flight? <laughs> He's like finding their dad who's not their dad. Let's just say that I definitely have as many questions as I did from the, from the last series leading up to this. Like I remember a point where I didn't know what five's purpose was, where I was like, why is five here? Like, why does five keep talking about this like organization? And then we end up exploring that organization. We get introduced to Lila and Lila's mother, who you learn is connected to her watching season two. Um, but as far as this first episode goes, it really was just an introduction to the Sparrows, uh, their dynamic with each other, this weird place that Ben Hargreaves is in because he does have a relationship with Klaus as a, as someone who's dead, but now he's here as a member of the Sparrow Academy. Vice versa, you mean Klaus has a relationship with Ben because he was dead. Absolutely. That's what I meant. I am going to watch this series because I did expect episode one, honestly, to really give us that transition. The story they're pushing forward is this, like you say, an entity, right? Or like something manifesting in the base of the Sparrow's uh, mansion. And we don't know why it's really growing, um, but it's it's like the new, what is it of the season? It's probably going to be the idea of like the Sparrow's and the Umbrella's really don't like each other. And then it's like, hey, you time traveling nonsense just caused this giant entity. We hate you more, but we kind of have to team up to stop this kind of thing. I'm all for that. I think that if we introduce this new Sparrow Academy 
I don't want the show to ask us to care about them as much as I, our beloved Umbrella Academy. But if that's the goal of the season, then um, it is a heavy roster of characters to balance. So we'll see how they manage to do that. I will say I do miss Mary J. Blige as Cha-Cha from the season yes. one. That was such a treat in terms although, of like villains that we're chasing. What's up? Although it's a new timeline. She could always pop up. Hey, Mary J. Blige, if you're listening to this podcast, please show up again. Okay. So um, my vibe on the show is I didn't binge the second season. I absolutely ate up the first season. Um, after this intro episode, I do think there's plenty more to learn about the Sparrows, I think one of the more interesting one or not more interesting ones, I should just say on a personal level, I really liked the um, character of Faye. And although they are, although they can't see, they can like shoot Ravens out of them. I'm like, what the, yes. what the hell is going on here? But that is so different. It makes me think that if I was Allison, you know, somebody who can impulse, you know, someone to do something based off of her spoken word, I would look at Faye and go, damn, I wish I had that power. <laughs> so you're, you have these, not soups, but like sort of like meta humans all grouped together. I can't wait for the conversation of Diego pointing to people and being like, well, how come I didn't get that? You know, like, cause this show could definitely pull off something like that. Uh, give me more Klaus, you know, being Klaus. And uh, I'll probably watch in doses. I'll probably watch the next two episodes by itself, take a break and come back and watch the rest of it. And of course, the Umbrella Academy season three is streaming on Netflix right now. The entire season is up right there. It's not a Stranger Things scenario. You can go watch it all. If you want us to get to it, please let us know on social media. We'll plug all those, you know, in the description. Let's move on from Netflix to Hulu. Uh, we're going to move on to our full series review of Pistol, Sex Pistols miniseries. It's been, it was dropped, I think, last month, two months ago, something like that. We're finally getting to it. Uh, basically, on my recommendation, I really wanted to get to it. Uh, Danny Boyle created this. It is based on the novel Lonely Boy, Tales of a Sex Pistol by Sex Pistols star Steve Jones. If you are any aficionado of punk rock, you know that name. Uh, Anarchy in the UK, God Save the Queen, multitude of other things. On one album, they only have released one studio album, uh, never mind the Bullocks. Uh, this series is essentially basically all told from Steve Jones' perspective. Uh, here played by Toby Wallace, who I'll admit I'm not familiar with his work. He is a member of a punk band, not the Sex Pistols yet, uh, but with Paul Cook, the drummer, played by uh, Jacob Slater, and Glenn Matlock, the bassist, played by Christian Lees. One day he encounters an eclectic store owner named Malcolm McLaren, um, soon to be a legend in the punk rock space, here played by Thomas Brody Sangster, his wife Vivian Westwood, played by Tallulah Riley, and a pretty promiscuous model character, Jordan, played by Maisie Williams, of course, from Game of Thrones. Malcolm basically looks at them and says, like, you guys can't play, but you're punks and you want to get to the system. This is, you know, Margaret Thatcher era England. Everything has gone to complete trash. I need something to shake up the system and you guys are the ones to do it. So he partners them up with a vocalist, uh, Johnny Rotten, played by Anson Boone, and they basically go to work just being a-holes throughout the country and playing whatever gigs will allow them. Uh, all the while, Steve and Johnny have this really toxic relationship about where the direction of the band is going to going, not helped by the introduction of bassist Sid Vicious, played by Lewis Partridge from uh, Enola Holmes and a bunch of other things, as well as Steve's relationship with a up-and-coming singer-songwriter, Chrissy Hind, played by Cindy Chandler, who will eventually go on to form her own success with The Pretenders. It's a very big thing about, you know, 70s punk in the era of, you know, early alternative and that kind of thing. A lot of great guest stars and guest um, characters pop up in there. And again, all of Danny Boyle's madness in there that we will get to. Noah, this series has been getting not so great reviews. You didn't finish it up, but you've watched enough of it to know the context of all of it. Um, we, we talked earlier that you were not as familiar with like the punk space and sex business earlier. Did you get anything from this? I really wanted to be involved on this title with you, Brandon. You know, you had high, you didn't have high praise, of course, because we haven't really covered it yet, but you at least had 
awareness into who the sex pistols were and why you felt it was worthy uh, discussing. So I was like, you know what? Caution to the wind. No, I have not heard a song from the Sex Pistols. Did I listen to it before? Yes, I did listen to it before I hopped on this episode. I do like the music, actually. Okay, I'm a little punk. Like, I'm a little punk symbol up. But I think that I'm going to talk about the pluses first. It looks like it shot like it was of the time that the pistols were up and coming. That is something I appreciated so hard in an age where I feel everything wants to look a certain way, like very real or very, I don't know, they want to use the best technology that's out there or what, or what, the, or what have you here, whether it be the filters, whether it be the lighting, you name it. It's even got a, uh, an aspect ratio that is yeah. like boxed in um, just from a viewer standpoint. I appreciated all of that. I wish more movies that were trying to capture this style just went for it in the same way. Um, you're watching this and it, it feels like that kind of fantasy of back then. And uh, that was my first remark. Uh, secondly is it is entirely stylistic. Um, yep. It's, it's cinematography. It's like, episode introductions and its transitions to a point that I think I loved it. And then it became a fault because it was repetitive as the other band members became introduced. Brandon, I really felt like, well, these, like, I don't know if I am finding redeeming qualities in these characters. Like, I'm not sure if I'm finding a reason to root for them, unless you came in with that background or that history of i you know, the sex pics, sex pistols were, I'm trying to like think of a stereotypical like punk fan. I don't know why I'm doing that. But if you're coming, <laughs> if you're coming in with this, this, this knowledge, this appreciation, this respect for these rock stars in their era, I think you're going to watch the series and you're going to take a lot from it. Now, if you're coming at it with new pair of eyes, you might have those kind of like, uh, that kind of perspective on some of the technical elements like I have, but you're, it's going to be hard for you to find really the through line of what these characters you know what they want to achieve, but do you know if they're really deserving of it from a like storytelling standpoint? I think that's pretty accurate. I had heard a lot of people trashing the series and even like Johnny Rotten suing the production company because he didn't think it was accurate enough, which first and foremost, Johnny Rotten is his own animal to tackle. Um, but for me, like I knew Sex Pistols from the incredibly non-punk route of like Guitar Hero. So like I was coming from a pretty baseline level of it all, even though I respect the history. For me, this is good. Um, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I was never necessarily bored. And it's a double-edged sword because you mentioned the stylistic pivots behind it, um, courtesy of, um, of Boyle, as well as uh, Anthony Mantle, who worked with him on like Trainspotting 2 and Slumdog Millionaire. And like, it's shot in that really grainy film aspect ratio style of what something in the 70s would have been. But it's also like constantly cutting between things. It takes advantage of like drug fantasies and things like that. And it does everything that's power to like keep you interested beyond the actual characters themselves. And I feel like for a show that is meant to be so, you know, spit and taking the piss out of everything to style it up so much, I think is a bit of a downgrade for it. I will say, you mentioned Thomas Brody Sangster, has a bit of a baby face for playing 30. I'll admit it. Uh, he's the best part of the series. Every moment from him is played up so big and so owning of his own, you know, masculinity and machismo that it's impossible to take your eyes off him. Unlike Hanks, who is just relying on the accent to do whatever he needs to do. I also appreciate that Vivian Westwood is giving a lot, um, played by Tallulah Riley. It's so much more overshadowed by Malcolm's, you know, grandiosity and everything. I appreciate a lot of the guys playing the pistols themselves. I think Toby Wallace gets a couple moments, especially early on when, you know, Steve is 
basically struggling to be a musician. He doesn't want to be a front man. Malcolm just puts him in the guitarist position and says, here, you do you. And he basically has to go to Chrissy and beg for, you know, guitar lessons. I think that's kind of a neat trick to pull as far as just getting attached to the character. Um, but again, like, it's an interesting series. I was never really bored by it, but it doesn't feel as punk worshipping as it should. And I think the ending especially kind of falls flat when you tackle the very messy backstory of Sid Vicious and um, uh, Nancy Spungen. I think that's something that this show was not meant to tackle. And I think Danny wants to romanticize. I think it feels kind of gross. That being said, I think all the performance scenes are really good. I think all the stuff between Johnny and Steve is really fascinating. And even how it doesn't really portray the punks as just like, oh, they're from the gutter. They don't serve anything. Like it has respect for that culture. I just wish it actually showed it. Brandon mentioned earlier that I haven't made it through this entire series. I watched the first half and I was trying to understand where this, where the importance came from this character who had, I think, don't want to butcher it. Okay. Let me, I'm going to play a short game of who was that. My favorite game. (laughs) Okay. No, there is a scene where Steve is making out with somebody in the back of a car and they're putting their fingers in his mouth. I want to understand what was the relationship there because watching it, it, I didn't nothing like it didn't come through for me to understand. Like, is like, is this something that I meant to place focus on? Like, is this integral to the pistols and their relationships? You know? Yeah. The whole stuff with Steve and Johnny and the groupie who inspires the song bodies, which Again, is a whole track within itself. Right. But the whole framing device of like, you know, she is the focus and it's kind of this kind of specter that Johnny and Steve interact with in different ways and it changes their perspective on music and lyrical development. Like, I get what that's supposed to be, but again, it, it's a very weird choice for a show that so, that so evidently relies on like the toxic brotherhood of the pistols that the shift it over to another character who is so deep in her own trauma. I, I didn't really feel it worked, but I understood what it was going for. Okay. Thank you for speaking to that because as I was watching it, I, that's where more questions were raised than interest. It was like, I'm left just questioning this. How do you feel about, uh, what this series looks to achieve in terms of, uh, we've, we've covered previous, uh, oh, it's even FX as well, uh, ethics about these major profiles. We just talked to Pam and Tommy. Um, regarding Pistol, do you like this? continuance of like let's return to the the past and this time we're talking punks um in the sex pistols i didn't mind it again i think move the movie i think the series kind of narrows its focus to a weird degree like it tries to especially and i think like midway through the show in like episodes three and four it tries to branch out into like the pistols have you know revolutionized music but at the same time we never really see the smaller angles to that we never see them like really going into like the grimy subcultures of London. It's always very glamorous. It's either the gigs or it's the, you know, sex shop that Vivian works at or it's certain locations. And maybe that was just a budgetary or COVID restriction, but it feels like it could have gone a bit grander. The one time I think it nails that is when the pistols actually go to America. I think that's actually the sign of like, oh, they're actually growing as people and they have to adapt to certain things that are outside of their comfort zone. That I think actually kind of worked. But I think the rest of it feels a bit too contained even for the short period of existence Pistols had. Who would enjoy this series? I think punk fans will get a big kick out of it. I think if you are familiar with the Sex Pistols at all, you'll get a big kick out of it because when they do actually perform, you know, Anarchy in the UK or even Sid Vicious' version of My Way, like there is an electricity there that I think Boyle is able to capture with, you know, his technical team and everything. I don't blame Danny Boyle at all for wanting to choose the pistols because their exploits, even, you know, Malcolm goes as far as to say, like, 
you are not meant to be musicians. You're meant to be soldiers. When you view it as that and not as much of a music show, it works a bit better because, again, the musical numbers are meant to be exaggerations to methodology and ideologies than actually, you know, creativity. We are now moving on to, I would say, one of the most anticipated continuations of the Star Wars universe. Yes, we are talking Obi-Wan. We are discussing episodes five and six, the finale of this truthfully epic series. Brandon, I'm going to toss over to you. This is going to be a, you know, one of our different conversations where we're not really covering the series as a whole. It may lead to a discussion of the, like our overarching feelings, but I think we just need to dive into what these moments mean for Obi-Wan Kenobi, especially in the final episodes where he has such proximity to Darth Vader. I think so, because I think it's what a lot of fans were asking for. And I, I'm certainly one of them to a degree. Uh, episode five, we kick off with Reva and Obi-Wan's confrontation on Jabim with the refugees coming through the path. And then Vader shows up and just screws everything up. Uh, he fights Reva. She gets stabbed. The Great Inquisitor is alive, but Obi-Wan and Leia and everyone make it off of, um, make it off the planet safely. We then get to part six, which is the big, confrontation where Reva has discovered the existence of Luke. Again, Owen and Bruce step up to defend their farm and defend Luke. Obi-Wan arrives after saving Leia and a big duel between Obi-Wan and Darth Vader takes place on an isolated planet just to save the people from the path. Obi-Wan comes back into his own as a guardian of the force and a guardian of the people again. And it's a big ending for a show that seemed pretty low-key for a long time and then really up the stakes for the last episode. And color me impressed. Noah, were you the same way? This is absolutely what fans have needed since the closing of Revenge of the Sith and those very pained lines that come out of Ewan McGregor of, I loved you like a brother, Anakin, and you were the chosen one. And all of these emotions just, he, it feels like he has to pour them out because there is Anakin, his, is he still his pat on one, even if he's an adult? No, because he was knighted. He does not have the rank of master. Um, well, I'll say this much. He's basically giving his final words to a dying Anakin. And then to realize years, years, years later in A New Hope that Anakin is alive, it's like, no, there, there, there was time between then where he knew the presence of Darth Vader because we just haven't seen it yet from the major movies. Here we have those moments. We have the back and forth between Vader and Kenobi. We have several fights. Brandon, did you count them? Do you, do you know who won, who won between you and I? You predicted three, right? Yes. And I believe you predicted two. I, no, I predicted one. Oh, yeah. Hey, meet us in the middle, baby. There was not one. There was not three, but there are two fights. Although I will say that Vader does get a third fight, but I'll take, you know, he didn't fight Kenobi. I'll take it. Um, his, Vader ends uh, episode five with this very intense battle with Inquisitor Reva as she is being manipulated by Obi-Wan Kenobi, uh, being told that he is going to assist Reva in her overtaking of um, Anakin slash Darth Vader. Um, but really, he's Anakin to Reva because Reva is revealed to be a youngling um, that we saw at the very start of the series where Anakin enters the Jedi temple and slaughters alongside clones. He slaughters all of the younglings that are there, as well as the Jedis that are defending them. Um, we learned that Reva is one of the surviving younglings of the Jedi temple. And so all of her actions, all of her uh, motivation has come about redeeming those friends and probably family that she lost to a, 
dark side, a Sith Anakin. I want to talk about the fight, but I first want to talk about that reveal. Did you feel like that plot reveal was rewarding to our experience with Reva? Because I really felt like it was. I will say if you were coming into it, either not expecting it or hoping for something else, I think you'd be disappointed because I think, again, we pointed out in episode one, like, oh, if it's not Reva as a youngling, that's a missed opportunity. But like, of course it is. I think it's the obvious choice. And I think it's the best choice for the character. I think seeing Reva's anger and sense of revenge go absolutely nowhere after a decade is heartbreaking. And I think that episode really drives it home, especially with, you know, the Inquisitor coming in to be like, yeah, I'm still alive, like that kind of thing. Um, but again, like Moses Ingram has been doing wonders with the role. And I think that revelation just adds that final bit of oomph to her character that I think so many people have been missing. Remaining here on episode five, we have Reva finally like throwing her sword at Vader, um, who watches a departing ship that we know Obi-Wan is on and all of his surviving members. Um, but the fight between Vader and Reva, I think, was one of the most exciting things to watch, not only because of seeing Vader in action, like this is the this is the haunting, like enigma of Sith. And so I was so excited to see how he would act. In action, because in my head, when you picture Vader, it's like that machine chest and he's like very slow moving, but he can use the force really well. Well, no, like he's such an amazing combatant. Like we have to remember that he is Anakin. He is somebody who cannot, cannot accept defeat nor back down from a fight. Um, and when he fights Reva, I just like how he starts out with very, uh, force focused moves and at the, you know, reveal of her dual saber, he completely rips it in half, takes himself for one tosses her another and it's like he's looking for a fair fight and well not that it would ever be fair but that was just oh that spoke i think volumes for the character and what their intentions are speaking of vader here um oh damn that was just i felt so i, was, I felt so moved by that fight i was gonna add it you meant you're saying things that you tell a lot it's telling that you know vader has that failure of like oh crap i got the wrong ship on the ground my arrogance got the best of me and then uses that same arrogance to throw the sword to forever just like oh good you're anakin you're literally just the same dummy we knew from 10 years ago actually that i'm ready to talk about episode six and how you feel about that final battle it's dope <laughs> it's dope. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you saw, there was a piece of fan art going around of like, oh, a potential of episode four where like Obi-Wan brings up all the stormtroopers guns and has them shoot. It's like, oh, it's so badass, but it also goes against the idea of the character. And I saw a lot of people comparing that to this. And I was also like, no, this is different. This is Obi-Wan coming into his own, regaining his connection with the force and showing off to an opponent who for lack of a better term, has no defense against him. And also on a planet where there's no one just them. It, like, it's just them. There's nobody else there. I think just as a descriptor of the Force, I think it is something that Obi-Wan would definitely need to use at his most desperate and at his most connected. I think one mistake for the finale, that big action sequence, is intercutting it with a Reva chasing down Luke and being uh, opposed by Luke's parents and... I had wish they just happened separately because I do want to go back to the fight and see it in its entirety. And it's, it's like an effort because you have to watch the inner, inner placed scenes of Reva chasing after these two families, uh, this mother and father who only have like really blasters at their disposal. I did want to say, uh, again, Chung Hoon Chung did the cinematography. Brilliant. I think every shot of that Obi-Wan Darth Vader duel is fantastically shot, um, like between the lightsabers, between the mountains, between the little glimpses of daylight that we get in the sky. 
brilliant. Also, we get to see Owen and Baru being badasses, and I love it, and I need more of that. I love the actual fight and intercutting it, but I wanted to see actually, like, more of that, because we basically just see, you know, Baru slap, Owen give an inspirational line, and then she runs in the desert. And I was like, there should be more of this. Where Obi-Wan really apologizes to Vader for having resulted in this action being made, and then Vader denying that statement and saying that he was the one who killed Anakin. Whoa. I don't know, Brandon. I said in the beginning I didn't want more than a couple seasons. I really do. I, I, I want to pose that later because I do want to get into it. Okay. But I want, but I do also want to go off of your point of like, you know, the slicing up in the mask, that thing of, first of all, we see the lighting choice of like when Anakin says, you know, you didn't fail me. And then it immediately turns to red and it's the personality of Vader coming through. Such a great use of use of lighting and coloring. But also the idea of, again, Vader's arrogance coming through, that idea of, oh, you still don't believe who's responsible for you and you're still not willing to accept that. But at the very end of the series, he finally has that step of approaching the Vader that we know from A New Hope, who is who does have that grandiosity, who does have that sense of being sure of himself. And I feel like it was as much a development for this incarnation of Vader, almost as much as it was for Obi-Wan. Now, one character of the series that we've had plenty of focus on in the early episodes, but who kind of falls more background um, given the weight of like, other relationships and other conflicts that need to take place. Um, how did you feel the treatment of Leia was towards this second half and like these later episodes of the season? I uh, still loved it. I think we were pretty sure that going into, you know, the second half of the season that Leia was certainly going to be sure of herself and be able to take care of herself. But at the same time, you know, we saw from episode two, she is not prepared to face the galaxy at large. We see her take charge in like little moments. Like she saves Lola in a pretty comically easy moment of just like, Oh God, my George turned evil. Bloop take off the tracker, which is kind of fun, but like it goes towards her, you know, sense of usefulness and her sense of place of being. And even when we're on the ship with, you know, the other people on the path, like she's taking charge, she's making her own decisions and she's almost forcing Obi-Wan to abide by that, you know, unless Vader is involved, in which case all decisions come out the window, but like she still has that sense of urgency to her. And I love that that hasn't been lost. I just, again, Vivian Blair should be praised high heaven. I like that the show and Vivian Lyra Blair, I love that the show and the actor behind the character really kept it consistent throughout the series. I never felt like I doubted Leia's um, intentions or motivations as a character. I liked the very final moment when she meets Obi-Wan and the first thing she rushes for is her droid. Um, yes. It's <laughs> it's upsetting because we know the fates of both Leia and Luke's parents. It's great to see the shiny moments of this family before it just becomes the tragedy of Luke and Leia's beginning they're ultimately like faded on. I have gone back so many times, like a stupid amount of times, to that final speech that Obi-Wan gives to Leia, just like, Princess Leia, you are so wise and, you know, wonderful like your mother, but you're also passionate like your father. You got those gifts from both of them, and you are the best of them. Just like, that's the speech that, like, Luke needed that he never got, but, like, Leia gets that, and I love it. Yeah, that was a wonderful thing to experience. And to get Luke meeting Obi-Wan at the closing of Episode 6, you're just... He says the thing! You are just ramping up for what adventure awaits and there's so much that's ahead for this series i hope and the fact that they pitched it originally as a trilogy um i think that was some news that broke recently i want longer moments between these characters i wish that some of our smaller characters were reintroduced and like did more i'm looking at you kumail nanjiani um but that's okay because it was redeemed with like other important side characters like tala um like uh i mean I think there are plenty of shiny actors in this series, but yeah, the main focus is Anakin, Leia, Obi-Wan, and Reva. You took the foreshadowing right out of my mouth, but I assumed that you would want to see a second season if they actually made one. 
dude, second, third, fourth. Don't make a fifth, but I'll take, this, but <laughs> I'll take the second, third, and fourth, dude. I don't know about you. I haven't gone back and watched this as a full binge series yet, so I don't know how it works as just one cohesive product. I will simply tell you that watching it week to week, it certainly felt like this was a movie that was drawn out and that was trying to fill in the blanks. That being said, if they wanted to do another season of it, I wouldn't be opposed. Like, I don't think you could have Hayden back because unfortunately I think that interaction between him and Obi-Wan is done at this point, but you could certainly have, you know, Liam Neeson back who we see in the finale. Here's my qualm. If we get a next season that focuses on Luke and Obi-Wan's relationship, I want them to get the hell off of Tatooine. I had enough of Tatooine. I am so tired of Tatooine. That's that's the problem is I think you kind of have to keep it on Tatooine right now because what else do you do? It's Leia. It's the highest stakes. Well, if we're ready, then let's go get into our ratings because I think think we're going to be very positive on this. For me, this might be roasted to glasses. I'm probably going to lower it, but again, the prequels mean too much to me. It's a 9 out of 10. I love the show. I think it's fantastic. I think it does... Pretty much everything eventually that it sets out to do, it reestablishes Obi-Wan as a character. It allows him to grow and evolve to the point that we recognize him in A New Hope. It introduces us to wonderful new portrayals of both new and old characters. I love that, of course, that, you know, Joel Edgerton and Jimmy Smith come back, but like Vivian Blair, again, should be commended to high heaven as Leia. She, she would make Carrie Fisher proud. Moses Ingram is doing the most work as Reva, and I think by the end, really brings a lot of sympathy, and I would love to see where her character goes uh, in future properties as well. And again, Hayden got another chance. That's the biggest thing. He got another chance, and we all love him for it. Stylistically, it's great. Deborah Chow's directing is solid and focused and really just does a lot to bring homages to the original films, but also really drive the narrative forward. I think the stuff they do with the volume is some of the most consistent they've done recently. I just love it. Honestly, I think it's going to be high for what I'm for what I expected out of the show. It's going to be an eight and a half out of ten. I'm going to relate to Brandon on the mentions of we have excellent introductions of new characters um, either side of our hero's journey. It gives you the return of these iconic characters that some of us like that was our Star Wars. So we got Ewan McGregor back as Obi-Wan. We got a confrontation between him and Hayden Christensen's uh, Anakin Skywalker. We even got like throwback scenes while they were still fostering a master and mentee relationship. and. Those scenes like could have made me gasp if we were given to, if we were given them like 10 years ago. Um, but the fact that efforts are being made to still give them to us now, uh, Star Wars, I think is one of the, the largest franchises. Um, and so I love that they're just giving respect to the fans who have wanted to see something like this for so long. Now this, the scope of it, because it is a series does take away some of the, I want to say like some of Obi-Wan's style, I think can sometimes be like bogged down because of how long he needs to exist in situations. But even if that happens, you never lose sight of the legend that Obi-Wan is. And now that he is going to be able to speak to Qui-Gon and they got freaking Liam Neeson back, this show was excellent. I cannot wait to do a rewatch to see, to experience the series episode one to episode six in a single sitting. Um, it's going to be a long time sitting down, but it will absolutely be rewarding because of, you know, the returning of all these characters. That will do it for episode 30 of Plot Devices. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the madness of the episode. I hope I can narrow it down uh, under an hour 45. Future me, do your best. I, I won't blame you if you can. Follow us on social media, uh, at Twitter and Instagram, at Plot Devices Pod. Our social media manager, Noah Guzman, has a lot of stuff in, in the course for that. And our TikTok page, which he will tell you more about in just a moment. As well as you can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our RSS feed at Plot Devices. Give us a rating there as well if you're so inclined. We'd love to you know, hear how we're doing. Noah Guzman. What do you got going on in your life? What do people know about? 
You can follow our TikTok page at Plot Devices Podcast. I am constantly imagining content to put up on there. So please give us a follow and you will see what nice things I come up with. And I want to shout out a podcast that I had the pleasure of joining on as a guest host. This is a Miss Marvel podcast. It is from the Boardwalk Times. They have an entire collection of individual podcasts that they release for Disney Plus titles that relate to Star Wars, that relate to uh, the MCU, and it is an excellent series to go and explore. I had the pleasure of guesting on episode two of Keeping Up with Kamala Khan, focusing on Miss Marvel. I am joined by by, uh, Zach, as well as Danny on that podcast. I will be sharing that any way I can on the plot devices feeds. So that way you can go check it out. Give some of their other episodes a listen to. I love the work that they're doing over there. And I can't wait to invite some of their hosts to join us on our pod. Yes, of course. Open invitation to the guys at Boardwalk Times. They do excellent work there. And we will be getting to Miss Marvel on our show, hopefully next week, if not the show afterwards. So keep your ears out for that. Uh, you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. Follow my band at Cablebox underscore music as well. We've got some upcoming gigs and upcoming music. Follow my work in ASU Odyssey as well. I have a couple of articles in the works just to follow my social media feed and uh, stay up for that. And I also guessed it recently on No Kips Acquired. We did a TV show theme song draft of our favorite TV themes of all time. That should probably be up on their channel at No Kips Acquired on Spotify as well. And once again, Plot Devices, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, give us a rating there if you feel so inclined. Thank you all so much again for giving us the time of day or night or whenever you listen to us. My name is Brandon King. That has been Noah Guzman. This has been Plot Devices. We'll catch you guys next time. 